0: we're listening to Seniors Junction podcast. We're preventing seniors isolation one conversation at a time. Your hosts today, Dr. Namrata Bagaria and myself, Dr. Paul Merkley, co-founders of Seniors Junction. And our very special guest today is Dr. Julianne holt Lundstadt. She is a professor of social psychology at Brigham Young and has done a great deal of research on connectedness and conversely, on isolation, and has some of the, the stats that are so important as hard evidence for what we do. Welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
1: Wow. Um, where do I begin? <laughs> um, so my my research has focused on social relationships and social our social connections and how that impacts our physical health, and I've, I've actually been studying this for um, about two decades now, and um, this work has spanned um, from looking at the overall uh, effects and, and association between different um, uh, major health outcomes and, and uh, risk for premature mortality, um, but it's also looked at some of the biological pathways by which some of these health effects can occur, um, as, as well as um, looking at factors such as relationship quality and, and how that matters. And, and so um, I've, I've really tried to take an interdisciplinary approach to understanding this. Uh, because it is such a complex issue, and, and there's um, still so much to uh, understand.
0: That's, that's fascinating, and, and you can't imagine how, how pertinent it is for us. Um, how long are some of the longitudinal studies that, that you've been looking at?
1: Yeah, so um, in, in my meta-analyses, they, um, on average, so that means averaging across some that are shorter and some that are much longer, um, it was about seven and a half years. Um, and so some um, may have only followed uh, individuals for maybe a year or two, whereas others are following individuals for decades. <laughs> um, and so on average, it was um, seven and a half years. Thank
2: you. And uh, Professor, in your line of work, you must have encountered social isolation as a pain point. And so, what is your uh, opinion or your perspective on how what is social isolation and what are the key pressing points?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, as we and and uh, you know, when I say we, I, I I'm really talking about uh, the you know, the entire field as as this evidence emerges. um, There's good evidence of the protective effects of being socially connected, but conversely also, um, you know, as you mentioned, those social deficits um, and and social isolation is one of those. And so um, I'm always careful to try and define social isolation um, as separate from Another related term, loneliness, that often gets used um, interchangeably, but and while they're related, um, they actually are are um, uh, distinct concepts. And so, social isolation is really um, the objective uh, lack of social connection. Um, so, um, having few or infrequent social contact. Um, few social roles um, uh, and perhaps membership in, in social groups. On the other hand, loneliness is really more of a subjective um, uh, concept. Um, it's it's this distressing subjective feeling. Um, you know, instead of isolation objectively being alone, um, loneliness is perhaps feeling alone. It's it's defined as the discrepancy between one's actual and desired level of connection. And so it's important to recognize that while certainly being objectively alone puts you at increased risk for feeling alone, (laughs) um, that you can certainly be isolated, but not lonely. You might actually enjoy your time alone and, and that solitude. Um, and conversely, you may not be isolated but still feel lonely. So you might be surrounded by other people um, and and yet um, still feel profoundly lonely. Uh, and, and so it, it, these, these are um, both uh, important for our health and well-being, um, but they're slightly different. and the way in which we might address them might might be slightly different also
2: this is, I think, the best explanation I've heard. We, This is, I think, episode 31. And so all these days we've been podcasting, we've been reading, learning, but this was by far the best explanation of objective versus subjective feeling alone. And of course, how it influences. And, and so I just wanted to go a little deeper. So what were your main findings of your research so far of if you have to like just say a bullet like a few bullets of what other precipitating factors or what what jumps out some kind of yeah world. yeah
1: so um, you know from from my own work um, I did a meta analysis on um, social isolation loneliness and living alone and risk for premature mortality. And that um, meta-analysis included data from 70 um, longitudinal studies. Um, It included over 3.4 million participants. Um, And this was based on um, all of the available data worldwide. And what we found was that they all significantly predicted risk. Um, So loneliness um, increased risk for earlier death by 26%, isolation by 29%, and living alone by 32%. And despite these relative differences, um, they actually weren't statistically different from each other. (laughs) So what that suggests is that they all equivalently um, predict risk for um, premature mortality. And that's, I think, something that's noteworthy because um, we sometimes think that perhaps one might be more important than the other. Um, But that suggests that, um, that each of them may contribute to risk. Now, importantly, there have been additional studies that have been done since that time um, and these um, have uh, replicated these findings um, and and so we we have um, pretty strong confidence that these influence our risk for premature mortality. There's also evidence um, across um, multiple health outcomes. Uh, And some of the strongest evidence comes from um, cardiovascular outcomes. So increased risk for um, uh, cardiovascular disease and stroke. Um, There is some evidence um, in terms of other health outcomes including things like diabetes. Um, There's also evidence of increased risk Um, for um, poor mental health, as well as cognitive health. So increased risk for um, depression, for example, um, when it comes to mental health. And for cognitive health, um, increased risk for um, mild cognitive impairment, dementia, and Alzheimer's disease. And so it's really um, quite remarkable that um, there's evidence across um, these these, um, three key uh, Um, contributors to health, um, our physical health, our our mental health, and our cognitive health. Um, And and so uh, really what this suggests is that this um, influences not only our health, but also, and and I should mention some of the strongest evidence um, comes from from, uh, risk for premature mortality, and that's um, mortality from all causes.
0: Very striking. thank you very much. Um, sounds a chord with me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and um, I couldn't help but focus also on one thing you mentioned um, about the quality of relationships. Are there are there metrics for that too?
1: Yeah, so that's a, a really great question because um, the way the, the field has evolved, um, uh, initially a lot of the really early research focused on more of the structural or objective kinds of measures of relationships. So uh, what I mean by that is the it would often look at things like the size of one social network or... Um, uh, whether or not someone is married or living alone. Um, uh, and so these are are quite objective um, and and are somewhat easy to measure. Um, but then as the field uh, kind of progressed, there became more, emphasis on on the functions of relationships, Um, the extent to which you can actually rely on these people for support, (laughs) for example. Um, And so uh, there was, um, uh, so there's a a great deal of research on some of these uh, functional aspects and and really um, focused on social support. Um, there are fewer studies that have looked at the quality of relationships, and so if you think about it conceptually, um, we we need to have others um, in our lives, <laughs> um, but the the functions that they serve also are important, but it's also important to measure the quality of those relationships, because as we know not all relationships are entirely positive. <laughs> relationships can be sources of strain, conflict, frustration. Um, and so uh, uh, relationships may actually um, be sources of interpersonal stress. Um, we also know that relationships vary in the um, the extent to which um, they, how, how deep the relationship or how intimate the relationship is. And so there is evidence to suggest that quality um, does matter and that actually um, negativity in relationships has been associated with risk and so it's not just having people in your lives but um having um positive relationships that um seems to be associated with with um with some of these protective effects and so uh really it, it's part of a um uh, a, a holistic picture of relationships um, to, to in, incorporate that uh, component of quality um, along with those other um, measures of relationships.
0: Thank you. One, one theme that has come up in previous podcasts has been intergenerational friendships. Is there anything that's, that's known about that or, or something you could surmise?
1: Yeah, so um, this is a growing area of research and um, unfortunately it's not something that I have been personally involved with, but um, what this suggests is certainly some um, promising findings. And what I am so um, energized by is that we know that um, both isolation and loneliness can affect anyone at any age. And in fact, there's actually some evidence to suggest some of the highest prevalence rates are among um, younger individuals. And so um, these intergenerational approaches um, have uh, the potential to really Benefit multiple generations, um, and so it's not necessarily one generation helping the other generation, um, uh, because they're they're both helping each other.
2: <laughs> Thank you. So, what's your vision to solve uh, this problem, or maybe a few pointers around how can we tackle this issue?
1: Well, I'll just first say that it's it's complicated and complex and um, certainly no one person or no one sector can do it (laughs) alone. And and so my vision is to really see, um, and this um, I think also is echoed um, substantially in the National Academy of Science um, consensus report, um, that I I had the honor of of being a part of, and one of the things that we recognize and write about is how how um, every sector can potentially play a role in addressing this issue. And and while that report was focused on the medical sector, um, certainly other sectors can play a role. And um, just to get everyone thinking about this, I want I want you to you know, just think about the last year and a half of the pandemic and how because of efforts to reduce social contact, to reduce the spread of the virus, it has affected every single aspect of our lives. Um, I mean, from, from uh, you know, the education, the health sector, the um, enter, even entertainment, <laughs> um, transportation, you, you there, there's almost no sector that hasn't been in, impacted by this. And what that suggests is that if we can see how these sectors have been impacted by that, we can also see how each of these sectors could potentially be part of the solution. So if these sectors can reduce social contact, they could also potentially be sources of um, um, promoting and fostering um, and enhancing social connection. And um, really, uh, when we have that more uh, um, cross-sector approach, uh, we we can better fill in some of those gaps um, and and, um, really reach people at um, every point in in their their life um, to help them um, uh, stay connected.
0: Given what you just said, what do you see as some of the challenges and what are some of the opportunities? <laughs> oh,
1: there's so many challenges. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, one of the things that that is a big challenge is, is just, um, and I'd say a challenge and a huge opportunity, and that is practice and policy. And so oftentimes we are unable to do something because that's outside the norm or it actually contradicts some kind of policy or procedure. Um, and I think the the pandemic actually gives us this opportunity to reevaluate some of these um practices and policies and i think we've already seen where when forced to that the way of of business as usual um when it has to change it can change um and similarly we can be much more intentional about it and so that that we can be uh thinking about the kinds of practices and policies we want in place and that uh, when when those are barriers, um, how how do we change those? How um, and and so I'm not saying that it's you know something easy. In fact, that's that's you know part of your question was what are those barriers? I think they can be um, incredible barriers, but I, I see this as an opportunity where people are reevaluating these practices and policies. And so this is a huge opportunity for us to be intentional about this.
0: Instead of just reacting to a virus, we could actually take some thought and deliberation and design some of these practices with a view to fostering connectedness and purpose. And what's
1: um, great about... um, well, I shouldn't say great about, about this time, um, but perhaps a silver lining of, of, of this um, you know, past year and a half is that there has been a flurry of, of research and people are collecting data and seeing how things are, have been affected. And we can use that data to inform these kinds of, of decisions. And as you say, instead of being reactive, um, be, be quite intentional and, and we can use this data to inform, uh, inform that.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I concur with a lot of what you say. I think, uh, intentionality and, uh, design by purpose is something, but I think is very important, uh, business as usual, uh, long-term care homes across North America, Canada, U.S., They've had staffing issues. They've had issues since long time. And now when you redirect your uh, resources from uh, say activities and recreation to safety, like COVID checks and stuff, and you think of doing that as, okay, we can do one thing later. And then you see the mental health of the uh, residents or even people who are aging in place and suddenly they can't do the things they were doing to stay connected and then the digital divide or even the norm, like like I'm one of those people who can comfortably establish a new friendship or relationship online, like with someone, because that's what we've been doing through our business. And I've been working telemedicine all for like a decade or more than that. But I've seen many people who struggle and they're waiting for things to open up so they can finally start meeting people. So I see the difference in the two approaches. and. Uh, Definitely, I do miss the old way of meeting people, but you've got to adapt with what's there because we never know. Uh, And and I see that that the change management piece that you've been alluding to indirectly, I think a lot of it is change management and attitude shift, which is the harder part of doing something than the evidence part, because you might have all the evidence in your face and it's been there for decades but it's like, who's gonna gonna do it? And even if you do it at a leadership level, how do you then percolate it throughout the organization? So my understanding of any kind of digital transformation or any kind of transformation project has been change management. Like if if that is something that is a make or a break uh, in any kind of project, Um, anyways. So, in uh, what is your advice uh, for a startup like us, which is focusing on social connectedness for older adults?
1: Well, um, I mean, the the first thing I need to say is is um, just I am thrilled that you're doing this. It's so needed and so important, and I you know so many people um, can potentially benefit um, from, from what you're doing. Um So the one I, I guess advice I would have for you and you know, anyone else who may be um, uh, you know, designing um, programs for older adults is um, to really um, also think about evaluating what you're doing. Um, and so uh, I'm often asked, uh, you know, what what kinds of things work um, to help, help people feel more connected. Um, and the hard part is, as we know, we have lots and lots of evidence that shows that when people are socially connected, it's very protective. Um, but where uh, we have less evidence is when people aren't, what efforts are successful in creating those connections or helping feed people um, feel more connected? And so that's a little bit trickier. Um, and and so um, and and simply because we um, perhaps uh, you know design a social group or an activity or some kind of um, a service or device. Um, doesn't necessarily mean it will be effective for all um, in all cases, um, and so it's always important to um, really test what what you're doing um, if it's having the effect, you know, the intended effect, um, and to um, because of course you probably also want to know. Um, uh, ways it could potentially be strengthened, um, even if it is um, working great. And if there's anyone you're missing, um, because uh, there are some kinds of approaches that are maybe more desirable for some individuals, or there may be barriers that you may not be aware of. Um, And so if um, by testing this, you can um, begin to understand if there's anyone that you're trying to reach that might be missed. Um, and so that th- those would be some of my um, kind of broad level um, uh, pieces of advice.
2: Thank you. I think what you're saying is true. We've realized that different people connect differently. And that's why we need, though it's social connectedness, but you need to somewhere personalize that approach. Um, yeah, so can I add and just and an example them to, them to them. that?
1: You know, I, I think of... Social activity, kind of like physical activity, Um, and yeah, you know, not everyone likes to to run or swim. Maybe they like to walk, or they may have preferences. And so, um, uh, some activities might be more appealing to um, some individuals than others. And so, just like we, you know, have to think about. The, the kinds of preferences and barriers that exist when we try to get um, people to be more physically active. We need to think about some of these things um, when when um, trying to help people uh, be uh, become more socially active. And, and then and, true, and it's true for ourselves too, of course.
2: <laughs> no, I think that's well suggested. Like we've noticed uh, like some people will do well like there's some kinds of individuals who come for the, the workshops or the courses we do. They like to do their homework, read, and then ask good questions, right? So one part of our our, our intervention is you, you always get it. A- a book, whether a textbook or a workbook or a book, like a book, like a regular book to read. And then it's divided over eight weeks. So you have to, because we want also want them to develop their solitude along with their connectedness because the, both have to go kind of parallel. So, so we've seen some people that come with the excitement for knowledge. And there's some who will do extremely well when we give them breakout rooms to talk to each other. But then some will not do very well with one-on-one, but they'll do well with the group setting, and and so you see within a bunch of people, it's so nuanced. Uh, we're learning. We don't know the. We don't have the hack <laughs> yet. Uh, if we do, of course, we will be uh, very happy to know what's the solution. And also, we haven't factored in yet the personality types: introversion, extroversion definitely having a variety of activities and what limits us majorly even like we're doing everything virtually right now right so whatever can be done virtually so fundamentally people who don't like to socialize virtually are automatically out of what we do and there is a sizable amount of people even youngsters who even if they have jobs where they need to online connect wouldn't do it for social connection right so um So what I've started realizing is the ones who are actually coming have a decent amount of connectedness. And all we are doing is increasing it a a notch further, adding purpose to it. But the ones who are disconnected or completely like not bought on uh, the digital journey, of course, we've not factored that in. And that would be something I think we will have to think as things open up, because right now there is no way we can even do those focus groups or meet people like like as the restrictions open up. Yes, we can. Uh, I mean, there are opening up, but they might just close again. So we're not doing much. You know, we are also on the fence. Like, okay, should we should we not? Those kind of things. Um, Yeah. So that's that's wonderful advice. Thank you. Well, and I'll just mention,
1: um, uh, I did a, a study with some colleagues at UCSF, um, during the pandemic. And one thing that we found was that, um, and, and I'll just give the caveat that these were, um, older adults in the San Francisco Bay Area who were, um, uh, um, very, um, at, at high risk. Um, and, uh, what we found was that uh, the majority of them did not use uh, any kind of video chat or, or um, other kind of tech, uh, you know, or I should say higher tech kinds of um, uh, devices um, or tools to interact socially. But what they did do use was the telephone. Um, and so, um and sometimes when we can't reach them through perhaps um, some kind of uh, uh, video chat we can always um, pick up the phone <laughs> and so that yeah. that um, that may be an option for um, some older adults that may that may be missed um, through some of these other tools
2: yeah I think we see that by just older adults we see it within our company we have we have people who work like our interns age, age 19. And we, in, a, in a day, we can even deal with people who are with 95. So 19 to 95, 99, right? So it's a very broad age range. We talk with people, work with people. Uh, most of our interns don't do video calls. They're like, we they find it old-fashioned. They're like, who does that? So if you come on any call, it's audio. They will be like logged in, but audio. So like Clubhouse is one of those examples why it's so hit, because it, it's like, and then the other day they were like, who uses Facebook because I was like why are you not able and and he goes like it's such an ancient tool and I looked at them and I'm like don't ancient me <laughs> like, what do like I felt so it's, embarrassed
0: what's that say about me
2: yeah funny. and then we oh, have facebook no
1: I yeah I get it yeah. I mean we, I was even trying to I, I was talking to some colleagues and we were talking about trying to do um, even research studies, and on the one hand, we were sent mailing out surveys to some people that we didn't think were going to be online, and then in other groups, it's like, who who gets anything other than junk in the mail? No one's going to pay attention to a survey that's in the mail, <laughs> and so, you know, regardless of what method you use, you may potentially be missing um, a portion of, of who you are hoping to contact, and so, you know, it's all, all the more reason to really be thoughtful about who you're trying to reach and how you can best reach
2: those groups. Yeah. We did like a fun exercise within our WhatsApp group about how remember Paul, we did that little yeah, game. That was really fun. Which we, yeah. Wow. And we made like this greater than this greater than that, like or oh, this equal to like from like and so that we understand each other because it's sometimes what would happen, one person would communicate more, say texting. And for the other person, it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So it was like, which it was just fascinating, that little experiment we did within ourselves. But we also see that across, like, if you go on the Facebook group that we have for the startup, it's, it's individuals who are older adults, seniors. Uh, I am totally irrelevant in that group. Anything I post never gets a like or a comment. Uh, but if we invite them for anything live, like let's do a Zoom or an audio or whatever, nobody comes. So they are very happy just sharing stuff on that group. That's that's their connectedness. For I don't know for whatever reason. So it's so fascinating to see that even with the little sample size, are the the ones who come for a classroom don't like to use social media the ones who are on our social media don't like to come to our classroom <laughs> so it's like how the hell do you market you know and i am like because that's what I'm, that's what my job in the company is and i'm like okay i have never encountered this issue the users are not the ones who are available online and the ones online are not interested in buying so how the hell do you sell and of course, if I solve that, then I'll be having another conversation of how to scale a senior startup and some other lecture somewhere. Uh, but uh, I think well-received uh, suggestions. And we are also quite open to paper pen. Uh, by the way, if you if you live in Canada, the hospitals still work with mail. You get your, you get your appointments on a via mail and even your reports. So, and fax machines still work here. So I don't know if that's the case in the US, but in Canada, it still works. Anyways. So if people want to find you, what's the best way to find you?
1: Um, well, they, um, they're, they can find my website, which actually needs to be updated, um, which is, um, but they can find me on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, uh, and uh, if anyone's interested, I also have a um, recent TED Talk um, that they can uh, watch online as well.
2: Perfect. And I shall be putting the link for the TED talk in the in the podcast video, along with your Twitter and uh, other handles. So thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Professor. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much.